Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Af Malhotra, the founder and host of Straight Talk. Once again, I have an absolutely storming episode for you. Two very cool individuals who are intellectually gifted. Um, they teach, they educate um, the world on topics and issues that really matter to, to all of us, including the Straight Talkers on our show and our community. And of course, two people I discovered by reading some of their work. And they're both here today, and I'll introduce them in a second, because they both jointly wrote uh, a couple of uh, articles on MIT Sloan, which caught my attention. And it was so aligned to some of the good work we've been doing as a community. So it was necessary for us to go out to both these people, and they kindly accepted and have come on our not-for-profit show. So, um, firstly, I would like to welcome Kersis Odom, who is an executive professor of management at the Dia Moore McKim School of Business at Northeastern University in Boston. Hopefully, I got that right. And Kersis is an ex-naval um, uh, personnel as well. And that's a backstory that we'll definitely get into because, as you know, we have had a lot of naval officers and military officers on the show as well. Uh, he's also the managing partner of Prescient Strategists, a distinguished principal researcher at the conference board and a member of the Forbes Coaches Council. So a very um, gifted individual with a lot of credibility and, of course, an author, too. And uh, we'll talk more about that. Um, our second guest is uh, Chan P. P. McAllister, is uh, also uh, a academic and assistant professor at, of management at the W.A. Frank College of Business at North uh, the Northern Arizona University and the co-author of a book that I definitely want to buy and read and maybe get him to sign it as well, which is um, titled Political Skill at Work. Political Skill at Work. Many of you are probably thinking, oh, my God, that's the reason I didn't get my job or that's the reason I'm still in a job. Um, how to influence, motivate uh, and motivate and win support. So I don't know if that's been that's been published, right, uh, Chan? Just make sure. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's it's available all bookstores. Awesome. So they both also wrote why pivoting people is a strategic priority back in June 2021, which is the article I first read, and then recently they wrote equity in the hybrid office that we all know about is, um, which is the new normal, the new way of working that was written in March 2022. So without further ado. Firstly, Curtis, welcome to our show. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I did say to you, profanities allowed. You said, "Are you sure? Are you sure about this?" Because I'm ex, I'm an ex-naval man, and I was like, "Yeah, that's that's fine." So if you want to go for it, go go wholeheartedly. Uh, but thank you for coming on our show, Curtis. Firstly, thank you very much. My pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Wonderful, and uh, Chan, really cool to have you on the show as well. And I know you guys are synchronized. You're probably partners in crime or buddies, and you've written stuff together. You're probably aligned or, or um, not aligned and then find alignment in ideas and, and thoughts. So we're going to kick off with the topic that I think is really close to, to my heart, and, and a lot of our listeners will resonate with this, which is as follows. I, I believe that there is a whole new hybrid working um, operating model. If, if, if you will, and you, you both talk about this, we'd like to understand the importance of the concept of equity and, of course, politics in this new operating model where I am 50% at home, 50% in the office, and I'm concerned in the old days I used to get promoted because I was good at my job, of course, but I used to hang out with my boss, my boss's boss, and I felt like being around allowed me to um, be seen and to be part of opportunities that others wouldn't if they were working in virtual environments. And the whole damn thing's flipped now on its head. And I don't think people can figure this out, frankly. Uh, I talk to executives all the time. So my first question to you, Chan, you're gonna, I'm going to start with you, is um, firstly, tell us about uh, Reverse. Tell us about this book you've written, because the, t the title is brilliant. And then talk to us a little bit about what you believe are the biggest hurdles and challenges that face executives today in this new hybrid model? I know that's a big question, but we'll start with that and then we'll keep you know, going back and forth and have a really cool conversation. Okay, yeah, thanks, Af. Um, the book Political Skill at Work focuses on a line of research that was developed in the early 2000s by Professor Jerry Ferris at Florida State University. 
And political skills, essentially your ability to navigate organizational politics, right? So those who are politically skilled feel very much like they are the masters of their environment. So you can think about this. If you are worried about political politics being done unto you, you're going to have more stress. You're going to be less confident in the workplace. The research has shown that those who have higher levels of political skill have more promotions, higher salary, again, less stress, all these hosts of wonderful things that happen in the workplace. And it's not just about, you know, when we think about organizational politics, it always gets a really bad rap, like, you know, oh, don't play politics. And yeah. that's not necessarily a good thing, to, not way to look at it, right? Because if you're a bystander and you just, you completely take yourself out of politics, you have no say in your own destiny, right? Politics can be used for good things. If you're a savvy leader and there are awards or promotions coming up for your subordinates, you're going to play politics in a good way. You're not going to disadvantage anyone, but to make sure that your subordinates get those promotions, get those pay raises. So what we're kind of saying in this book is put your political skill to work, right? This is how you're going to motivate others, how you're yeah. going to get good things for your employees. And I'll be happy to, you know, talk too long about uh, organizational politics and political skill throughout the course of this. But to relate it to your question now, I think it is a flipped situation. I think you put it very uh, eloquently because it used to be that idea that the way you get promotion was, you know, you go and play golf, you are hanging around the office. You know, we even bring those examples up in the book. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but uh, in the new, potentially new hybrid workplace that some uh, individuals are living in now, it's different. And we kind of talked about this in the article with this, uh, this new idea of, of visibility, right? Where you can't just be in the office um, the whole time. And so it's not about just staying visible and making yourself seen all the time, but using all those key moments to really show your ability to network with others, to show that you are incredibly competent at your job. So it's not just like, let me just hang on Zoom meetings for a little bit of extra time so people see I'm here. It's you're gonna have to show your value in other ways, which in many ways is a good thing, right? Because we're focusing back towards competence and less towards some of that networking. Yeah. We're never gonna get away from the importance of networking and the importance of you know being politically skilled at work. But yeah. these are some things that leaders need to take into account too, which is you have to find other ways to assess your subordinates and probably more holistic and more genuine ways than we've done in the past. Yeah, yeah, you're bang on. And I want to I want to raise one point, and I guess Curtis, I'd like to bring you into this, which is uh, that's fine, and that's that's us, the people. You call them subordinates, I call them staff or employees or team team workers or whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, you're at the mercy of the manager and or leader, depending on how you define these people. So Curtis, tell us a little bit about, there's been so much change and you can, you can go through the change of the last two and a half years, which is why we're having this conversation. There's been a seismic shift in operating patterns, behaviors, habits, and so on at every level possible because of the pandemic. But Curtis, tell us um, what responsibility does the leader really have? So one is you're, you're my leader and I'm, I'm this guy and I'm 50% here, 50% there. What's surely it's your responsibility to make me feel comfortable, to feel empowered, to feel like I've got equity, which is why you wrote this article. Unpack that for us for a moment. What does that mean? Sure. And, and thank you for the question. I guess what I would say is I, I push back a little bit. I think that the leader's responsibility is to create the environment in which you as the person can feel empowered, that you feel like you could have, you know, conversations, real talk conversations with your leader. The challenge that I think we're finding right now is that because of the past two and a half years, the idea of leadership and leading have changed. And I think we have a lot of people who find themselves in leadership roles without the current leadership skills they need yeah. for the workforce. Our workforce is looking for empathy. They're looking for someone who is going to understand them as a person first, and then as someone who can go about getting the work done second. You know, that's what the workforce wants. They want to come to a place where they can be themselves. They want to be the things that, that you know, Charn and I have talked about, you know, over and over through the years is the idea of people want to be welcomed. They want to be valued. They want to be their authentic self. And they want to contribute and be rewarded for those contributions. That doesn't change whether we're in office, out of office, or in a hybrid environment. The challenge, F, is that for leaders straight away, how do they need to change to meet the new expectations of the workforce. 
Yeah. The workforce is very vocal. They will say, listen, you know what? I'm not getting what I need from my leader. I'm not finding what I want. And as we know, top talent votes with their feet. They'll go somewhere else and leave a leader bewildered as to why am I losing people and what have you. Now, the challenge for organizations, as they're seeing this attrition, as they're seeing people leave, are they doing the data mining to figure out where are people leaving the organization from? Are they leaving it from a particular leader? Are they losing people from a particular part of the organization? Because that points to potentially that leader who needs some help of thinking about how to better connect and work with and get the most from the workforce. Mm -hmm. So to your question, I think as someone who is coming into an organization and has been forced to go into hybrid, they might be saying, you know what, now that I'm in this hybrid, I'm out of sight, I'm out of mind. No one even knows me. I'm a box on a screen in a Zoom or a Teams meeting. How do I need to make sure that I'm seen? Well, I think part of that is it's a shared responsibility. The old, the age old thing about managing up, it comes back in this way. If right. you have a leader that is not really aware, and I'll be kind, they're not aware of what they need to do as a leader. Some of the onus is on the workforce or the employee to say, listen, I need to ask my leader. I need to share with my leader. Mm -hmm. I need to try to connect and say, listen, I wanted to have a conversation, I'm paraphrasing, but I'd like to have a conversation about how you know, it would work better for me if we could work together or what I would like to see from you. Can we have more frequent meetings? Can we have some connections? Or the new thing, can all of our meetings not be about work? Can we have yeah. one meeting yeah. that maybe is about work and another meeting is about the culture, how well I fit in with the culture, what I need to do differently, rather than waiting to the once a year, maybe, performance review conversation where I find out that for 12 months, I've run afoul of the culture, I've not done things to set myself up well in the organization. That's something that I think now leaders need to have that conversation more often. And it needs to be more transparency because whether or not they know it, their employees want it. Yeah, yeah, you're bang on. And you're making some really great points, which gets me to the first part of uh, what I'd like to just get a bit deeper around for both of you, which is about demographics. And I, of course, you're both researchers and you're academics, so you study this in a lot of detail. Uh, tell us a little bit about if you've seen this, observed this. Is there a demographic, when I talk about leaders, is there a demographic difference? So let's say you've got a younger leader, you know, age-wise, a, a millennial or even a Gen Z or whatever, versus someone who's a bit, a bit more of a baby boomer. Are you seeing ideals, values, uh, adaptive behaviors, different, irrelevant, relevant? Be good to know because I think there are some inherent biases and also there's some assumptions here. You know, people say, oh, that guy's, it's just because he's in his late 50s, you know, old school. He has no idea. He doesn't know what we want versus, you know, uh, the opposite. So have you seen anything interesting, any patterns? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll throw in and then definitely want Charn to weigh in on this. Um, real time, last week I was having a conversation with an executive that I, I'm an executive coach as well. And I was talking with this gentleman and he was saying, you know, Curtis, I'm having a real tough time leading my team right now. And I said, okay, let's talk about that. And he says, they don't want to work. And I said, who is they? And he's like, the people that I lead. I said, okay, give me a little bit more information. And what he started to say is the fact of, he is someone who got to where he is by working the 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. He's someone who put it in on the weekend. He was the one that was available. If you can remember back, he was always available by BlackBerry. Yeah. He was always the person who was available. He put in the time, he got to where he is, very senior person at a C level. And he's saying, you know, the people that I work with, that work with me, they don't want to work. So I had to avail him of something that's very important for him to think about that I think cuts across all demographics. I believe right now there are three different types of people in the workforce, regardless of their demographic. There are people who are in the workforce because they just want a job, which means you're going to get the most out of me from nine until five, and then I'm gone. Mm -hmm. There are people in the workforce who it's their career. They've gone from job to job of similarity. They've built a career born over five, 10, however many years. And then there are fewer people in our workforce who are there for the purpose motive. Mm -hmm. They're in the workforce because what they do, it, it pulls them out of bed in the morning. It keeps them up at night, not because they're worried about it, but they're trying to you know, engineer how they can be better at what they do, how they can have more impact, how they can get more mileage, how they can actually find somehow the 25-hour day, which we know doesn't exist. Mm. But if you're a leader who is of the purpose motive and you're trying to find people or lead people in the way to match where you are, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Mm. 
Mm. So I think part of what needs to happen across demographic is the leader needs to understand this person that's part of my team. Are they here for a job or a career or it's their purpose? Mm. Based upon where that is, it almost goes back to the old situation of leadership with Ken Blanchard and Hersey. That's right. That's right. It's almost related to that, but in now three instances instead of four, what those guys did, and saying, okay, who am I talking to right now? Is this a jobs-oriented person? I need to meet them where they are. I don't need to pull them to where mm. I am. That's mm. a recipe for disaster. Let mm. me meet them where they are. And if I do that, I have the opportunity to get the most out of that person and have them feel the most connected to the organization and potentially me as a leader. It's when I try to be inflexible with the way I lead that the drama ensues. So that's mm. what I would say, and, and I'd love Charn to throw in as well. Mm. Can I make one point before Charn comes in, if that's okay? So as you as you describe what you, you just did, I'm a visual guy, I think of a very basic pyramid, okay, or a triangle. And if I think about organizations today, right at the top of the triangle, which is the smallest cohort, is the purpose people, right? right. You, if, as a CEO, you'd love everyone to be um, purpose-driven, but of course, that's not the case. And you need that, that you need the diversity of motivations as well, let's be honest, because you can't have same-same for everything, it gets boring. Then you've got the middle group, which is what you call the career, the career seekers. I love that group. So that's a good group. And then at the bottom, and again, I'm gross, I'm gross generalization. You've got the people. I just, I've just got a job, right? And um, and I think as a CEO of a, or a C-level executive in a company, you would do everything you can in your power, culture, initiatives, diversity, inclusion, ESG, and you name it, the whole lot, to flip that somehow right and move purpose right the way to the top you, you'd wish because then everyone would we in in at, at straight talk we talk about purpose passion perseverance so if you've got purpose there's a high likelihood you have some passion for whatever your purpose is and you'll graft hard even when times are tough right and you'll give it a shot right. wouldn't that be a enterprise so i love that and that's great I've got one more question, but I'm not. I'm going to wait for that question because it's to do with roles, responsibilities, tasks, and how to actually manage each person. But Chan, what what would you say to that, and what's your what's your lens there? Yeah, as per usual, I'm going to agree with Curtis. He he's a, a great mind when it comes to this stuff. Um, I do want to say that you know I teach leadership at Northern Arizona, and <clears throat> talking to my students who are, of course, you know, 18 to 23 generally. What we're seeing as they look going to as they look to go into the workplace, and I do a lot of like career type counseling with them because I only teach seniors essentially, right. so they're just about to go. And I will say that even in the last like seven years of teaching, um, but definitely in the last twenty years, you see that there is a more of a purpose oriented focus of these students, right? That. <laughs> students want to find these purpose-driven jobs and it's not that money isn't a factor right we know that money is um but i think organizations espouse values and purpose so much more now than in the past that it's an option to choose a purpose-driven life which sounds like a cliche but i really i mean i spend two classes uh, of my semester on how you can find that purpose because that's going to be so much more important to you than getting that first job if there's a difference in pay you got to determine how much your happiness weighs in that you know and there's a ton of research showing that you know at a certain monetary level um anything above that is kind of diminishing returns right and it, it kind of depends based on you know cost of living where you are but going above that doesn't add much happiness, right? So I try to express this to students, if you can meet that standard of living, purpose after that is what's gonna give you that drive to keep on going. And I would say that, yes, there are definitely those three groups. And I feel like that's the next SMR. Every time I talk to Curtis, I'm like, oh, that's our next SMR. That's the next mm -hmm. thing we're gonna write. And I feel like we're gonna write this uh, this next week now. Um, but- I'm ready to go, I, let's make it happen. I'm telling you. Um, but I think uh, I really do focus on the purpose side uh, when I'm trying to train these students as leaders. Um, but I do think that is a huge shift now is that going into the workforce with the mindset of I'm going to find a purpose driven job is absolutely an option and something people are vying for with their first jobs, oftentimes sacrificing uh, their salary or other benefits along the way to have that. And so there is a workforce coming up where we're going to find a lot of purpose driven people. And I think organizations that don't recognize that, because to your point, uh, about switching those, the pyramid. I think it's actually trickling down. I think that top mm. is like, it's like a sieve It's just going down and we're yeah. going to start seeing a lot more purpose-driven uh, 
employees. And if we do not, if organizations do not recognize that, they're going to be left behind. And I think it's worth organizations finding a sense of purpose and something bigger than just themselves moving forward. Mm. Is it fair to say there's another dynamic here, which actually fuels this? We're just we're using your model then. We're just calling it the pyramid for now, but fuels this pyramid, which is um, external factors like the startup economy, right? So in the old days, I'm just calling it the old days, but in the past, let's say pre-pandemic, so not old, but pre-pandemic, you know, you had a uh, you, you had choice, but of course the world was different, habits were different, hybrid wasn't the same way, although loads of people were writing about hybrid working, it was more about bring your own device, and that's as far as it went. If you think about how outdated that was, like in two and a half years, how we're now writing about a whole new paradigm, which is incredible, I mean, it's, it's such a fantastic thing. The startup economy has built a whole new age of employers, right? and leaders and leaders who build cool companies, trendy companies, sexy companies that you want to be part of. Packages are good. Forget Google and those guys, but you know, the smaller companies too. And they're all about purpose, right? Uh, intentionally, unintentionally, true, false, don't know. But it's all about 1% of what we make goes to, you know, everyone in our team, come whenever you want, go when you want. It's not about beanbags, whatever it may be. That is, is it fair to say that's a huge threat to the enterprise? Because when you talked about, Kirsten, you talked about, you know, talent, top talent votes with their feet and stuff. But is that one of the facts, not just about leadership being good or bad, it's the fact that you've got this threat, potentially, of another option. Purpose, but purpose not with you and your big company. I'm going there. Small company, but it's got loads of purpose and money and all the other factors. What, what do you think about that? I think that what we have seen, yes, first and foremost, I think that that does exist. And I think what we've seen now, if you really go back to Thomas Friedman, when he wrote his book talking about the world or the earth is flat, the world is flat. Yeah. You know, it's really accelerated now because of the pandemic. You know, post pandemic, we're at a place right now where we were home for a period of time where everybody took the time to really survey the landscape of what's available to them for career options. Before yeah. people didn't yeah. do that, people got up. They spent their hour and a half in commute on their way to work. They went and did their thing. They worked, they hung around with the people at work and they came home to their family and their loved ones and they repeated cycle. There was so much busyness. There was so much time spent doing things pre-pandemic that now in the middle of the pandemic, people were home. Cars weren't moving. People had nothing but the internet. They had nothing but their smart devices to amuse themselves. And what perpetuated this is the media. The media created this idea of the great resignation. They saw people yeah. moving, they gave yeah. it a name, they personified it, and next thing you know, people are running toward it. So yeah. what happened? In that space, people saw others saying, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go do something else. They saw people you know, who are working from home saying to themselves, if I'm working from home, why do I have to be here to do that? Mm -hmm. Why can't I go somewhere else? Why can't I do something else? And in that migratory state, of really realizing I could do work from anywhere. And if I wanna do work from anywhere, I wanna love the work what I'm doing, that I'm doing, do I love the work that I'm doing here? Or would I potentially love that same work somewhere else? Hmm. And the barrier to entry had been your geographic location to where that opportunity would be. If you were in San Francisco, you would look for opportunities that were in line for what you wanted to do, possibly in the San Francisco area. You don't have to do that now. I can live in San Francisco and work for a company in Chicago. I can live in Chicago and work for a company in Tampa. It doesn't matter. So what does that mean? People realize the fact they are less tied to location, less tied to an organization than ever before. And as they talk to others and they see others making their moves and finding some degree of happiness or even just a reset and a refresh, mm. they're taking the opportunity to do that. So the new purpose for some, as John was talking about, this new purpose, purpose of self. How do I purpose, purpose of self-preservation, purpose of my not being burnt out, purpose of not spending three hours round trip and commute every day, mm. purpose of trying to say, you know what, I've been working hard, but now do I have, can I take the opportunity to work smart? Yeah. Yeah. I want to add to that too, real quick, uh, this idea too, and after you mentioned some medical issues in the past, you know, I think this is a big part of COVID, right? We have a lot of young individuals who've experienced loss or at least been close to people who've experienced loss earlier in their life on a grander scale than ever before. And I think yeah, it has made 
young individuals refocus what they wanted, what they want to do, or maybe it was their parents' own awakening since COVID generally affected older individuals, and they pass it on to their kids, and so they actually have a little bit of maybe like a, a quick maturation process where they can start focusing on purpose over um, profit or salary right off the right at the beginning. I also want to add to your second question too about. Is this a threat to the larger organizations, these startups? And I'll say that, you know, what's really interesting is that I think it's easier for a startup to have a purpose and to have this um, cause or culture focused uh, environment there. But as organizations grow, that becomes harder because I think after you mentioned like, well, we're going to give 1% of our profits to this. And I think that's also what I'm talking about the future. Those models of purpose are going to become outdated, in, in my opinion. It's going to require actual holistic cultural growth, right? Where it's not like, hey, every time you buy a pair of glasses, we're donating one pair of glasses. It's going to be, we want our culture really synthesized throughout our entire purpose and being. And I always tell my students, like, it's hard to find an organization that wants that type of culture and wants that time of focus because there is an impact on the bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. Or as companies grow and turn into that that corporate entity, um, they can lose themselves. And I think a good example for your listeners, ever want to see uh, an example of this is on Netflix. It's an old documentary called Print the Legend about 3D printing. And if you look at MakerBot, who had this really amazing open source community and commitment, and that was their cultures, we are going to make things together. When they eventually went corporate, they closed and went closed Mm -hmm. source, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a huge betrayal that actually led to the departure of one of the founders who had actually built the MakerBot. Mm. And I think that's that's what we're looking at going forward is how can companies grow while retaining their purpose? Because there's going to be sacrifices to having a purpose, but that's part of, you know, when we go to like the not new, but real stakeholder theory, which is it's mm. not just about shareholders. It's about everyone, right? Mm. It's our community. It's it's And at this point, it's a global community. How do we really commit to not just making profit for me, my employees, and my shareholders, but the community as a whole. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. We talk a lot about this concept of conscious capitalism. We have it's come up; it's almost unintentionally come up in so many of our shows. Like literally, 50 percent of our shows, it always comes up. You call it different things, right? The one of the learnings, and I, I remember interviewing a CEO of a very large insurance company who sort of re- early retired on the show, early early stages, and. I remember him, t- him telling me, he said, listen, look, you got great questions. You've got a great point. He said, there's one thing you have to understand. So I was like, go on. And he said, the thing you've got to understand is the people who are running the show. Okay. There is a certain type of person running the show. I mean, the show, not the show you're talking about, which is the aspiration. I'm saying the people in, in positions of power, we know, right? And that individual or individuals come from a certain demographic sometimes or not uh, have a certain club there's a bit of elitism floating around and so on and these people are actually making the decisions right and when and he said what has changed though you're right is like st like shows straight talk shows there's a groundswell of you you your kind you you your people your straight talkers who are asking tough questions who are knocking on the door it's like the virtual protests happening at the same time everywhere like the pandemic that shit hasn't happened before that's for sure you know you had a little bit of an awakening in some employees somewhere and you sort of quickly quashed that or a company that was trying to be a bit extra clever you acquired them and that was the general modus operandi so then he says there's an opposing force that can disrupt what you're trying to do. Let's imagine we're trying to create a new world. Let's say, let's just be positive for a second because that's why we're having this discussion. We're having this discussion so we can share knowledge and learn from each other and cement our ideas, validate them and feel like, yeah, you know what? There is a new world. Chan said it, Curtis said it, XYZ said it, boom, I feel this is gonna happen. He says, the opposing force you've got to deal with, which is much greater, is the way we measure companies. And the way we have quarterly reports, the way you, you measure the sales leads, the CFO, et cetera, et cetera, the way bonuses are paid, right? Unless you fix that, which drives human behavior, you're always going to have these opposing forces running. And it's like, uh, yeah, I do, I do want to do it because, come on, man, you know the, you know the score. i got to pay the bills. i got to make my million a year and so on and so forth. Tell me what you think about that, because surely that's come up in your research. You know, um, I'd like your opinion, your views. <laughs> I can add one thing, Curtis. Well, are you going, Curtis? 
No, I'm laughing. I'm, I'm letting you go, but I'm ready, but you go. So I, I kind of want to talk about um, the communities that you're talking about, just like the ST community, the yeah. Mavericks that you've uh, cultivated. Um, I think there's a, this is part of the, the, the great resignation, quote unquote. Um, there are communities online, uh, two that I followed for quite some time, um, just as a, as a scholar of management wanting to know more about the people I study. And this is the yeah. work reform movement and the anti-work movement on Reddit. I don't know. Are you familiar with either of those, Af? Yes, I am. On the re- I am on the, the Reddit movement. Yes, on Reddit. Yeah. Okay. So I started following them because at one point, I, I found them maybe two years ago, especially the anti-work group. And it, it, one of their posts made the front page of Reddit on one of the most popular posts. And I felt personally attacked as a management scholar. They said, look, we don't want shirts with our company logos. We don't want a snack bar. What we want is to be treated with respect and paid a living wage. And I was like, oh, this is, I study like how to make good cultures and snack bars and company logos all fit like the general dynamic. But I, I recently tried to publish an article on this at an academic journal. It didn't go as well as I had hoped. Um, but I was telling them that we as management scholars have failed. We're so focused on these high-level cultural issues, um, mm. snack bars, and how do we develop that team culture so people want to wear their logo. Like We're not even getting some of the basic things right, like a living wage and making sure people feel respected by their, their, their bosses. And I ended up staying on that subreddit and I've followed them now for you know two years. And although they've had some growth issues, particularly anti-work, um, it's fascinating to watch the way these individuals are treated by bosses and leaders in their organizations. And I even hesitate to use the word leaders because I don't think they deserve that title. Mm. Um, I mean, the type of abuses that people are experiencing on a, on a daily basis is just unreal. But what is very interesting about this is it's coalescing people of all different demographics, of all different education levels, of all different work levels. And what we're seeing is this, this very powerful group, this organization of like, someone says, hey, I'm having this issue at work. And then someone says, hey, here's the BLS standards, uh, you know, Bureau of Label, uh, Labor standards, right, for this rule. And people are giving others the power to, to fight back against these bad bosses or against unfair wage practices. And so I think this really is the first time people across all jobs from top to bottom are kind of banging together and say, we're not going to take it and we're going to help each other. Mm. And I think it is going to start holding leaders accountable. And there are now real forums. I mean, there are millions of people on these forums and it's unbelievable what they're sharing and then how they're working together to overcome some of these, you know, awful bosses. Mm. It's it's very inspiring you saying that because I remember the story with the the, the guy from Amazon, uh, the worker from Amazon, who's now forced uh, one of the divisions to create a union, and of course that's going to yeah, catch yeah. on like wildfire. And I'm sure the Amazon leadership team's like, oh my god, what's happened here? Because uh, that goes against their entire sort of work plan. I want to say one more thing. I really commend you for saying that, by the way. Thank you for saying it, because I I have been saying it for a while. As much as I love academia and I've spent my time in academia, I do think that whilst we're talking about all of this change and we're saying this is changing and that's changing and I, I do think academia needs to change. I think academics need to change. I think um, diversity and thinking needs to come from academia as well. And I say that uh, with the greatest of humility and respect and sincerity for great professors, many of whom you've talked about today and authors. I do feel that um, I do feel that a lot of what leaders end up practicing not saying this is the sole responsibility of the, the academic uh, establishment. A lot of leaders practice the, the management principles, the models, the tools, and everything else that comes out of best-selling books. And, of course, the, the, the professor who goes and presents again and again. And the question really is, are the professors holding each other to account? And the only reason I say that is because I come from the research background. I won't name the company I come from, but you'll know if you do look at my background. And there is absolute group groupthink absolute group thing going on there there's absolute prejudice bias preconceived ideas racism and everything you can imagine at at least in the institutions i've experienced it's not talked about never spoken and therefore what you end up producing the models you produce the methodologies you release the data sets that work or don't work and i don't know why your article didn't get published whether you were alluding to the fact that because it was real and they're like holy shit i'm not publishing that dude um you know that's what i'm going with is why the only reason they could have rejected it obviously right right so 
would you agree and sorry Curtis, you can come in here but because i'm flipping it but don't don't you think management um scholars and leaders or business professors and so on have a responsibility to say listen guys let's look at the research agenda for a second because um, I reckon you guys are so influential. You're shaping people's thinking to such a level. I'm not seeing, I've, I've interviewed a lot of executives uh, and, excuse me, professors from universities, but we handpick them, right? Yeah. And we handpick them because a lot of them are just like, oh my God, not this again. Um, so do you, I know it's controversial, but do you, do you agree or disagree? I'm happy to take an alternative view as well. Curtis, can I tee you up? Yeah, I'm okay. jumping at the bit. I got like four things I want to bring yeah, home. Yeah, I, go for it. I, I, I'll go real quick and then I'm going to tee you up. So I think, I, I mean, ask like, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think, you know, the old adage of like the white tower, the ivory tower, right? Of like academia, yeah. right? Um, in business, that shouldn't be a thing. We should be surrounding ourselves with professionals and we should be surrounding ourselves with employees, leaders, and having those conversations, because that's where we get our, our best ideas to research and to teach. You know, on my side, I bring in guest speakers, like several every semester, because I need people who are current leaders. Um, the last time I was a leader outside of academia was 2012, that right. was 10 years ago, right? And I actively make opportunities for myself to practice actual leadership outside of academia. So I'm not stuck in whatever academia considers leadership, which is also yeah. a bastardized version of leadership, in my opinion. Um, and so even in like the classroom, you got to think academia is almost stilted towards keeping the status quo with like textbooks. Textbooks get published every year. It's the same exact material over and over again. I gave up textbooks years ago and I only assigned uh, Harvard Business Review articles and MIT Sloan Management Review articles because it's current thinkers, right? And it the students read it. I'll tell you, students do not read textbooks as a general yeah. rule. Yeah. But my students read the HBRs, they read the MITs because they feel that these people have real credibility, okay? Yeah. Yeah. And so what I wanna say to T.F. Curtis is that I am like a pure academic. I was military beforehand and now I am <laughs> academia, academia all the way. And I don't have anywhere near as much business experience as Curtis. And I think that is why, well, one, Curtis is just a good guy, let's be real. But also what brought us together, I think, was I recognized that Curtis had all this experience and I was drawn towards him because he's the kind of professor that colleges should be lusting after, right? There are, there are a ton of business PhDs out there, right? And, and Curtis has a PhD too, or an EdD. Um, but what makes him different is he is teaching in a business school and he has all the experience to rely on. And we need to have a mix of, you know, some of the PhDs, but then we need the Curtis's who have the education and all that experience. And he is like, I think the lifeblood of a lot of these business colleges. Curtis teed up, run with it. Wow. Well, first of all, let me let me get my legs back under me. That was, <laughs> that was some heavy. That was some heavy praise right there, my friend. I really appreciate you and thank you. As you know, I, I enjoy working with you, and it's because what you're seeing, Af, is two people who who appreciate what what our combined strengths yield in terms of how we look at it. So, I want to pull some themes through because there's just so much stuff going on. And my mind is on fire over here. You know, what 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 Charm was saying, which is so fascinating, is that when he was describing the idea of the things with Reddit, if you think back for a moment, you know, this unionized way of this, this thinking on Reddit is more of the unionized way of thinking for today's modern workforce. It's almost like the new zeitgeist, if you think about it. Unions were in place to protect workers from bosses in the industrial age, the whole boss tweet idea, you know, all of those different things. Move that forward into this knowledge age and you have platforms like Reddit, which allow people to have a voice and allows people to crowdsource their outrage and then crowdsource their ability to do something with it. They can source other information for how to deal with things. Rather than in the past, you had to go to HR and as a reformed, and I should say before, once upon a time, HR executive, I know that HR's role, since this is called straight talk, HR's role is not to protect the people from the organization. It's to protect the organization from its people. I mean, let's be honest. Mm -hmm. You go to HR, you are now flagged and watched as somebody that might be an issue for the organization. Mm -hmm. so that quiets people. Now, the thing that we all, you know, hopefully can wrap our mind around is that the number one threat to an organization is a class action lawsuit, number one, unionization, number two, where it doesn't exist. So if you think about the gentleman who started the union at Amazon out on Staten Island, do you know how that came about? It came about because this guy went to the leaders about COVID safety shortfalls in the warehouse. 
They didn't listen to him. He staged a walkout. He got fired. Mm. And then a memo was leaked where the leaders said that this individual was unintelligent and not articulate. Pissed him off so bad that he staged the unionization. He doesn't even work for Amazon. Mm. He was fired. Yeah. Yeah. He was so dirty. He was so pissed off. He's like, you know what? Okay, mm. I see how you want to play. I'm going to play a different game. Mm. That brings that forward. Now, to your last point about the academy owning this. Straight talk. I'm full-time faculty in a business school at Boston as a black man. I am an anomaly. Mm. I'm mm. an anomaly. And I also have the background that Charn alluded to. So that makes me not only an anomaly, it makes me someone that people have to try to figure out what to do with me. Yeah. Because of the standpoint, okay, this guy's got a lot of knowledge, skill, and ability. He's worked with Fortune. He's been a Fortune 50 executive. He's worked with Fortune 100 clients as a consultant and an executive coach. This guy knows things, but I don't walk around talking about what I know. My superpower, as Charn and I talk about, I take content and put it into context. That's it. Hmm. That's my superpower. I do that with my students. I try to help them understand what they're le learning in the classroom. And like Charn, I don't use textbooks. Hmm. I use HBR, SMR articles. And I use podcasts. One of the things I'm a hype, hype for right now is if you look at some of the podcasts that are out there from Gartner, from, from McKinsey and others, real leaders coming into the classroom, it, it's the new guest speaker. Hmm. It's the new guest speaker by having a podcast. Hmm. You know, I did this in my class. There was a podcast that came out and it was the former chief learning officer of Microsoft talking about how they took their company from a know-it-all culture to a learn-it-all culture. Fascinating stuff, real yeah. time. But if you talk about the academy, to your point, we replicate the academy. We hire people whose research agenda matches ours. We hire people whose academic pedigree is like ours. If we were, if we're an Ivy League school, of course we only want Ivy League graduates to attend here. We we do a lot of degree shaming. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of navel gazing at people's. Where are their PhD from? Oh, you only have an EDD. Well, that's not the same. Hmm. If your PhD is not from this, it's not the same. And Charn and I have some axes to grind. We won't do that hmm. here. But we have seen it. Just a we few. Have things, we have seen things done to our colleagues. We've had things said to us. And the fact of, you know what? We don't fit into the academy's mold. Hmm. So we're not quite as good, which yeah. is a bunch of bullshit. It's the idea of this. Let's talk to the students. Let's think about it this way. What's more important to the student, F? Going to a school where the faculty has these outstanding research agendas or going to a school where the faculty get it and the faculty can take content and turn it into context yeah. and have the student walking out into the workforce or their co-op or their internship feeling like, you know, Professor, Mc Professor McAllister's class taught me something I could use right now. It's mm. not about a bunch of esoteric bullshit in the ether. It's mm -hmm. something I can use now. That's the type of professor that we need to have. That's the type of professor students want to go to class and learn from. But instead, what did they meet? Who did they meet? The professor that the pandemic upended their ability to teach because they couldn't use overhead projectors anymore. Yeah, yeah. That's what we're running into. That's an issue. Yeah. And can I say thank you for that? Beautifully put. Can I say one more thing just to reinforce the point? This is this is a global issue with academia. It's a global issue with academia, whether you name you name the institutions there, but of course you, the same institutions on this side in the UK where I'm based, it's the same story because I've had the discussion. My my question around solutionizing though, just for a moment, I get it. The pain's horrible. We're actually, you're passionate. We're all passionate about this because we care. And if you think of the academic institution as a corporate for a moment, and if you think about the fact that you're the consultants in the in the academic institution, you happen to be producing material and teaching. That's your game. That's your offering. And you're making money out of it. But actually, are they drinking their own Kool-Aid? Because you would, <laughs> that's the point, right? That you have the answers to a lot of the problems for the corporate. But of course, now institutions like universities and, you know, various other educational institutions are kind of semi-corporates themselves going through their own political issue, the politics related issues, um, you know, race related issues, et cetera, et cetera. So if let's say this magic one moment, right? Magic one moment. You had a magic wand. Chan, you had one. Uh, I'll take one as well. But you both certainly have one. What would you do if for 10 minutes you could do anything you wanted? with the future of uh, academia? How would you flip it on its head? 
Ron, you got the first one. <laughs> okay, so this is always controversial because it's a double-edged sword. Uh, I'd get rid of tenure, uh, and most people hate to hear that. But what I've found is that I do think there's an importance with freedom of speech, and so I haven't really been able to suss out how we ensure freedom of speech and uh, academic freedom, I should say, like amongst professors. Yeah. But what I see more often than not is tenure makes people lazy. Um, and I've been to three different institutions, and I've seen senior faculty members in particular uh, using handouts that they created 20 years ago, and they've been photocopied 16 times, and they're they're faded, and the material hasn't changed. And I understand that that is, uh, you know, as someone who's going up for tenure next year, um, you know, I, it wouldn't hurt my feelings if someone told me you had to be held accountable to your teaching evaluations for the rest of your time, right? I don't have a pass on those um, because I feel like to be a professor, like you said, I have like, we're, we're generating, you're teaching this new generation of leaders or scholars in whatever field, but particularly in business, you have a responsibility to not yeah. just your students, but to, I always tell my students on the first day, I say, here's my why. I, I, there's a Simon Sinek book, Start With Why, that I love. And I, my first two lectures are based on that. I said, we're going to find our why for this class. Mm -hmm. And so I tell them my why, which is, yes, part of my why is to make you better leaders, but you're really secondary. I care more about your future employees. I want your future employees to have a good life and I want you to treat them well. And that's why I'm here. I said, that's what gets me up in the morning. Mm -hmm. And if I'm a professor who in 10 years is teaching the same class, I failed myself, I failed my students, and I failed those employees. And I do feel that sometimes tenure allows people to do just that. And they check out and they don't continue evolving with their students. Mm. And it's it's a type of protection that I know, I mean, there are, I've worked with several professors, just to give one last example, who are degrading to students and who know that they are completely protected. And it just irks me to no end. And I felt like if if their teaching evaluations and their research records actually mattered anymore, they wouldn't be here. Mm. Um, and we'd be able to find some more productive people. And that's how it works in the real world. And I don't think there'd be anything wrong with that in academia. Most academics who listen to this will try to find my address and hunt me down, but I'm mm. okay. Come at me. I love it. I love it. Can I ask you one question? One question sure. on, on that point. Is there, is it, does it exist right now where, so I'm a startup founder, right? I was a former corporate also like yourself in a FTSE um, or a Fortune 50 company. Um, and I left the corporate and I started my, started my own business, raised money, all that sort of good stuff. I've had investors, failed, succeeded, blah, 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 long story. I am where I am. I'm 43. And I see things, I have ultraviolet vision. I see things that I can't believe other people can't see, like you guys. And I'm doing this shit every day. You know, I, I've got, I've fallen ill. I've had burnouts. And the list goes on and I've had all the tough stuff and I've had the good stuff and I've enjoyed it all. And I've been fortunate to build this show over two years, which is an, a, just an accident and organically turned into this huge show where great, great guests like you turn up. So I'm now at a bunch of universities and I'm lecturing at those universities because I just thought, shit, I've got to, I've got to share this with someone, right? Because where's it going to go unless I write a book and then no one's going to read the book anyway, then I'm going to blog and then some guy will read it and there'll be a shorter blog, you know, and so on. Is there a, is there a hope here or is it happening right now where founders of startups, forget enterprises, I respect enterprises, but startups are super cool. Of course, I'm biased. Founders of startups are building the next enterprises, you know, in technology and other areas. Can there not be some sort of a system? I don't mean just a guest speaker, because I've done guest speaking. I don't think it's powerful enough. I'm like, I go for a guest speaking lecture. I'm doing 30, 40, 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half. A bunch of kids come around me or students are like, do you mind, can I connect with you on LinkedIn? Can I do this? Can I do that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. But it all falls apart. There's no carry through. There's no follow through. The, the, the lecturer is like, great, man, this was great. Thanks. High five. Can you come again next elective? And I keep doing that. I'm doing it. But I'm not creating change not the way that I want to create change. There needs to be a program where I am affiliated with that university. I don't care if I get paid or not, because it's my philanthropy. And I have to be in workshops, and I have to be in lectures, and I have to deal with the questions that a lot of the students have in their minds, but are, f are fearful of asking, you know, Chan, you might be a great lecturer, but the other chap you described, the one that I don't want to talk about, he's not, he or she is not addressing any objections or concerns or fears. So. Is there a program that you know of, or can there be a program where this is institutionalized? It's like with a university without that, that feed ain't a university. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, entrepreneur in residence programs, right? So those are people who oh, yeah. may have been entrepreneurs yeah. of startups and they can have full-time teaching positions at the university, right? You know, actually teaching classes and having the entire semester. We have at least one in the Frankie College of Business at Northern Arizona. Um, as I understand it, they actually hired six or seven uh, about Excellent. 10 years ago. Okay. Um, I don't, I think the biggest problem is sometimes they get subsumed into academia and it's like, hey, I came here to teach and talk about being a startup. I don't want to be on the committee for academic uh, yes. excellence, right? And we're 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 sometimes squandering those resources. And I can't speak to other academic departments, um, but we can look at things like, um, oh, I can't. Is it Nicole Hannah Jones who uh, the? Oh gosh, the. Uh, it's the 1867 project. I feel so dumb now. Um, she's the uh, the reporter who is now, I think, on. Uh, she was she was denied tenure at UNC. Right. Oh, yeah, Sorry yeah, to forget yeah. all this. Is it Nicole Hannah Jones? Is that I think oh, her name? So, but so she's a real, um, you know, a real journalist brought into the faculty. You see, creative writers, successful authors are sometimes brought in to be faculty in creative writing departments. Right. But in business schools, there are a numeral like a, a numerous people we could bring in to be these positions right but we have to treat them as such as experts in that area and and keep them in that role right where they are the entrepreneurship entrepreneur in residence or the expert in that content area and what's so cool about business is it's great to i mean obviously i'm biased too I, it's great to have phd's because there are certain educational factors that we can bring sure. in and there's a lot sure. of science to it but just as there's a science to management or a science to anything, there's also the art. And we need the people who've been there and done it. And I, again, I think the best is when those two mix, right? When we can bring both those. And so a student has science in one class, art in the next. What it does is it gives them that background of all the knowledge, but then shows them the applicability of it. And both classes basically support each other and make the student excited about learning. Mm -hmm. Love it. That's that. That's part of the future magic one, by the way. Uh, Curtis, what about you? <laughs> um, when you think about magic wand, you know, I'm going to lean on the fact that you talked about the idea of education being its own corporation for a long time now, for at least a 10 year period. I've been talking about this idea of the education business model mm -hmm. and what that looks like. And I think that universities all not to single any out are woefully inadequate about doing one important thing that businesses do that allows them to be successful. They lean on voice of the customer. Schools do not lean on the voice of the customer. The customer is a student. Mm. We, faculty, get around the room and we decide what courses we should teach based upon what's interesting to us. Mm. When's the last time we've had the opportunity to ask the students, hey, what would you like to be learning? What type of courses would mm. be interesting to you? What kind of faculty would should we be hiring? What kind of background? We don't do that. We are very, you know, almost this patriarchal say sense of you're going to get what we give you and you're going to love it. Why? Because we're XY University and we've been around for 200 and something friggin' years. Okay, mm. great. But that's not taken into account. So my magic wand is to say that no course creation without voice of the customer. No just sitting around saying, I like this course, let's teach it. And then you're surprised when your enrollment is squat. It's because mm -hmm. you're teaching something only you're interested in. That's number one. But I want to go back to something else you mentioned is the idea of being the guest speaker that comes in. And let, I'm going to be, you know, people, people are already looking for charm. I'm going to have people come looking for me now. So what I'm going to say is this. That professor of the class that you spoke in as a guest, that professor is not supporting what you talked about. That professor is mm -hmm. not caring about that. You came in to raise their student evaluation score because right. they on their star power. They wanted a lecture off. They leaned into saying, you know what, I'm going to have this guy come in or this person come in. And they're going to talk and I'll be cool with the students mm -hmm. and I'll get a rise out of them. And they'll be like, wow, this is great. But at the end of the day, what is that professor doing after you leave that ties the next lecture, the next discussion, the next whatever, back to what you brought into the classroom? Mm -hmm. Instead, they, they move on. It's like mm -hmm. scene change, move on. So we talk about the idea of tenure and what Charles was saying. I completely support it. If you think of the academy, they're adjunct faculty, part-timers. There's where I find myself as non-tenure non track, and there's, that, and there's the tenure track faculty. I love being a non-tenure track faculty member for one reason. I believe in meritocracy. If I'm not doing my job, kick me the hell out. Mm. But if I'm bringing it, then you need to rally around me and give me more support. And I think that that's the thing that's missing in universities. My problem is this, when did research become more important than teaching? <laughs> 
working in the university. Mm -hmm. It should be equal. One should not be more important than the other. I'm not saying that teaching should be more important than research. They should be equal. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part of it. If you're going to look at, if you're going to be a research university, that's one thing. If you're going to be a teaching university, that's something else. But if you are a teaching college and a research college, but if you're truly going to be a university, in my opinion, you should be able to charge point, have the art and the science. You need to have people who can teach and people who can do research that their research informs their teaching and their teaching informs their research. Mm -hmm. They're inextricably linked. I know, I'm not a researcher by trade. I'm a practitioner. What right, I do right. informs my research agenda. It's not the other way around. Correct. And I, that's what allows me to have the fun that I do have. And I love the fact that, listen, every year I'm being looked at whether or not I did enough to stay here for the next year. I'm fine with that. Mm. Because that's what the real world is supposed to work, in mm. my opinion. But now I know people are coming to look for me, so. <laughs> Lock your door, Curtis. Lock your door. Uh, I, mean, I, I have to say, you know, I think we can talk for hours, seriously, because I have so many more questions. Um, this format, of course, is for about an hour or so. I definitely think we're going to be doing some stuff together, and I'd love to pull you both in to another show at some point in the future when you write a few more articles. We're coming to the end. I mean, I, again, I, I, I'm so honored to have you both on the show. I think we've, I've certainly had an in, enriching conversation, and it's inspired me to think about a few things very differently. The next time I go to the university, it's a well-established university here where I'm a, I'm a guest lecturer, in fact, next week, Monday, um, and the, the chap who runs that lovely lovely guy who's brought me in, I do want to bring up these issues. I probably won't even discuss it openly. I will refer to this episode. I will. Because until you do this, you can't get to the crux of um, the real issues. And of course, students want to hear this. They want to hear that there's change going on and there are people who get it. There are people who get it. And not everyone is like the, whoever that person was you described. That person's going to go, whoever that person is, is going to go down uh, in, in the history books as, uh, uh, you know, the not to do practices. So, listen, I'm so grateful. Uh, Curtis, thank you so much for your time. Beautifully articulated, great energy. I really respect your wisdom, but also respect, you know, the graph that you've put in. And I get it. You made some important points about you being an outlier. And I can understand that. And that must be so friggin' difficult and challenging. But yet yet you differentiate yourself. And I certainly heard you. And so will our community. So long may that continue. And uh, don't give up your practitioner hat. Because that's the one that is so, so crucial to better education in the future. Uh, so my thanks to you. And uh, John, to you, my friend. Thank you so much for the unique perspectives. Especially those sort of big shifts and changes you want to make um, if you have the magic wand. And I think you called out the management professionals or the, ma or the should I say, the scholars or the academics as well. And that's the first time the, the scholars have called it out themselves. And I really respect that too. So long may your, your collaboration continue. I'd love to be in touch, love to be part of it. I'd love to speak at your, your universities as well, if at all, if, if it's of value. And uh, keep keep connected at many levels. I have so many more questions and ideas for you. So thank you so much. Before you go, I'd just be grateful if you could give me some feedback on how this experience has been for you. And we've gone on longer, but I think it just continued organically, so I let it go. But Curtis, maybe you can start and just give me some feedback. I'd appreciate it. And then, of course, Chan yourself. Yeah, I, uh, thank you, Af, for the opportunity to be here. I, I think the only feedback that I have, and it's confirming feedback, is that this is a natural conversation. This, this was definitely not a staged conversation. This is just three gents talking about things that obviously they're passionate about, that are interconnecting, and I think it's fantastic. I'd love to have the opportunity to work with you, have you speak in my class at any time, and, and just to have a little bit of fun. If you can't find either myself or Charn in the future, because those people that are looking for us, it's because they found us. But other than that, I would love it. I had a great time today. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, and I'll say, you know, thank you as well. And um, of course, anytime you'd like to be a guest speaker, I would love to have you. And you'll probably get an email from me to set up a time for fall. And not just because I want you to raise my teaching evaluations, um, <laughs> uh, as, as what Curtis said. Um, you know, one of the things I love is, you know, when I've had guest speakers in, I probably take as many notes as the students. And I try to incorporate that back into my classes. Because again, like that's, 
that's how you learn, right? You have to talk to people who are in it right now because yeah. when, you know, last time I was leading 2012, that was 10 years ago, right? And so my skills have definitely deteriorated and the generation has, has swapped out a bit. Um, you know, I'll say the one thing uh, that I love most about this is like Curtis said, it, it's honest, but also it's, it's bi-directional in terms of how great it is. I mean, mm. we got possibly a new idea for our next SMR. And I'll be honest, Curtis and I have been texting for the last three to four weeks about what is our next topic and throwing it back and forth. And, uh, you know, I love that the conversation is so open, so honest that new ideas can form and we can, yeah. you know, I think all three of us were able to kind of combine together. And, you know, I thought of new things, uh, new ways to think of things. Just, you know, I, was, I, I have several pages of notes here um, that oh, wow. I was keeping okay. of, you know, just listening to you Af, listening to Curtis. Uh, yeah. See, we're, we're always taking notes and I think, um, maybe that's what drew Curtis and I together too, is that we're always trying to learn. I think, um, this podcast is a great opportunity, you know, obviously I hope for your viewers, but also for your guests. I mean, I, I really appreciated just getting your insights on several of these areas, uh, Af, and I wrote down those questions you were, uh, hoping we would answer because I think those are awesome insights and that's what makes these articles valuable is mm. they answer questions that people want to have answers to. So thank you for that. I, I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much um, and for your humil humility as well, both of you. We'll definitely be in touch. Um, I'm UK based, but that doesn't make, that's not going to hold us back. Location doesn't anymore. And we'll collaborate and we'll chat and, and we will bring you back on the show if you're up for it down the line uh, when we're going to have a slightly different discussion. Thanks so much. Look after yourselves. I'm going to turn off the record.